Well, we are right in the middle of a series looking at the, the anatomy of the church in order to see how God has ordered it, designed it, and how He intends for, for it to operate. I think one of the, the greatest passages in the Bible is, is found in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus makes a promise, a promise to, to build His church. I would have no... No desire to even even preach this morning if there wasn't for that that promise. It's the success or failure, ultimately, of the church of Jesus Christ lies squarely built on the foundation of the gospel and upon the promise of Christ him, Himself. And part of that promise is not just adding people to the church, not just saving people, but part of that promise, Jesus fulfills it, through the, the structure that he gives. The Bible says he's given gifts in, in evangelists that we typically call missionaries and, and elders or pastors to equip it for growth. And then Christ mediates his rule through those overseers and elders which he's given to his flock to, to oversee it, to feed it, and to, to shepherd it. And if you summarize all of the passages in the, in the New Testament there, there are three major features to the church's anatomy. There are its visible leaders, three words used in the Bible, elders, overseers, or shepherds, pastors. It's exemplary servers, better known as deacons. We're all called to serve. A deacon is someone who, who does that really, really well. They stand out at that. They're a model for the congregation in serving. And then finally, there's there's you. There's there's me, there's the maturing ministers, that's, that's the congregation. We, we do the work of the ministry. I equip you to do that as a visible leader, but you do the work of ministry, and that work is to, to bring the body of Christ to maturity. And all of those are together. They're, they're, they're one, and yet they, they have distinct roles. And Christ uses each part to, to build his, his church. I use the these specific words to emphasize that, that all are part of the body and then what, what each of them, them do. As I said, we're all called to do the, the work of ministry. Some do that excellently, so they're models, and then others are chosen to equip. The, the statement that I've used to summarize it is a church is pastor or elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally affirmed. We're right in the middle of looking at the visible leaders. And we're looking at where they come from. We, we've, we've observed that. We're right in the middle of, of what do they look like. And then next week we'll look at what they do. The topic is important, not only because it is a, a major doctrine in the Bible. I mean, you think about it. The list that we're working through, God repeated twice. Once from Paul to Timothy in Ephesus, one of the major churches that were there that, that launched missionaries and, and pastors all over uh, Asia Minor, and then the other was to Titus, almost identical. And, and that's because this is important. It's, it's vital that God's church, that you in particular, understand what a biblical leader looks like. And that's, that's very important in our day because there, there, there's so much passed off as, as ministry that, that's really nothing more than superficial marketing. And there are so many unqualified people presenting themselves as shepherds of God's people. That's not anything new. 
It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. You're warned. And the reason that we're given these, these qualifications is so we, could, we, we can recognize them. But it's not surprising that people are confused. It's important that you know who God calls you to, to follow. And on the flip side, who not to follow. And there, there, there's plenty of that. The elders of a church are gifts from Christ. And the Bible is crystal clear on what they look like. So I want you to open, if you're not there, to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to see that portrait unfold. Titus chapter 1. We're looking at verse 5 and, and following. We say when you look at Titus and Timothy, there are seven definitive descriptions of visible leaders in the church. God does not leave us guessing. The Bible shows us exactly how to, to recognize them. He's required to be a man. He must have an unchargeable testimony. He must have time and training. He's required to be faithful at home. He must have a specific character. He must pursue the ability. And he must have a particular commitment. And we're going to get through all seven of these today. We've already done one. We're going to look at the other six. But before we do, I want to make you aware of a couple things. Just set you up a little bit. The first thing I want to say to you is don't listen to a message like this or read this list and think that church leaders are some special class of Christians. They, they are not. I was telling Tracy this morning before we left, um, boy, the bullseye is on me. This is going to be an interesting discussion at lunch today when we talk about the sermon as I preach about the qualities that are commanded to be in my life. And I ask my, my family, so how, what did you think about the sermon today? If I hear the sermon was good and that's all I hear, then, then maybe I've got some work to do. Don't think that the elders of a church are a special class of Christians. They're not. Or as, as B.R. Lakin used to say, some spiritual group of ecclesiastical gyraphs, he would say. You should not think of pastors like the Old Testament priesthood. Alexander Strzok rightly rightly warns, elders and deacons are not appointed to a special priestly office or holy clerical order. Instead, they are assuming offices of leadership or service among God's people. We should be careful not to sacralize these positions more than the writers of Scripture, scripture do. The New Testament never shrouds the installation of elders in mystery or some sacred ritual, like in the Masonic Lodge. There's no holy rite to perform or a special ceremony to observe. The appointment to eldership is, is not a holy sacrament, as the Catholic Church teaches. Appointment confers no special grace or empowerment, nor does one become a priest, a cleric, a holy man, or anything else at the moment of of installation. Elders are no different from any other member, and I have no authority beyond what you have, which is the which is the Bible. I am called to know the Bible well, in order to teach the Bible and to refute those who twist it, and I am commanded to have these characteristics recognized in, in my life. And that's the second thing I want to say to you. These characteristics are commanded, the ones that we're going to go over, they're commanded for you. They're commanded for every believer. 
They're just required to be observable in an elder's life before he's set apart to, to lead. The deacon, for that matter. You should pursue these exact same characteristics. So don't sit back today and think, wow, I'm glad I'm not pastor, that I don't have to live up to that, because you do. You should be a one-woman man or a one-man woman. You, you should be self-controlled and not self-willed. You should be hospitable. I mean, these are all things that are gentle. These are all things commanded for believers. And if you listen to this list and they're not in your life, you should pursue them that much harder. So with that, let's get going. We saw last week that the first one on the list is a pastor is supposed to be a man. We saw that from the description, the prohibition, and the congruency in practice. And while gender is not something that you can choose, these other six characteristics are. You can, you can choose to pursue them, and you're commanded to cultivate them in your, in your life. And the second one, the Bible says visible leaders in the church must have an unchargeable testimony. And the Scripture applies that to their inner testimony and then their outward testimony. Their private life, their heart life, and then their their public life. Before the church and also, obviously, before the the community. Look, if you would, at verse 6 of Titus. Titus was commanded to appoint elders. And who is he supposed to appoint or to look for? If any man is above reproach. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the parallel passage says an overseer must be blameless. Bishop is, is the word for, for overseer. Overseer is the word for bishop, I should say. Scripture applies this to his private and public life. And Paul begins here with an overarching principle. Everything else flows out of this, out of this, this, this primary target. Blamelessness. Uh, someone who is who is, 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 is unreproachable. All the other characteristics flow out of this one. They're all explanations of this reality in his life. Now, there are two different words that, that are used in Titus and then in Timothy. First Timothy 3 means an elder cannot be laid a hold of with a legitimate accusation. This word in Titus for um, uh, above reproach means that he's free from reproach in his character. A man who is a visible leader in the church must not be, be able to be called into account and held by a legitimate accusation. An accusation that's hurled at him ought to hit him and bounce off. Shouldn't, shouldn't be able to, to be laid, laid, laid hold of. It implies not merely an acquittal of a charge, but the absence of a charge against his character. This is not hard to understand, is it? I mean, you've seen the scandals play out and how harmful they are to to God's people, as well as the reproach it brings from the unbelieving world, which points and says, see, there's that's why I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer. And no one is immune from temptation, including the leaders of the church. But many of those scandals, many fall, come, many of them fall because uh, this standard is, is, is ignored before these, these men are, are, ever, are ever selected. This passage doesn't mean accusations won't come. 
First Timothy 5 tells us, gives us instructions on what to do with accusations that come against, come against a, a, an elder. First Timothy 5.19, you're commanded not to even receive an accusation against an elder. Notice it's, a, it's after an elder is leading. Not before. Before, you're commanded to, to pay attention to make sure there, there's no lingering accusations there that once the person is set apart, that they would be able to be accused and laid hold of. After they're an elder, then you're cautioned uh, against listening to accusations because Satan has a target on, on God's, God's spokesman. This passage gives an explicit command not to even consider an accusation unless it's corroborated. But it also says if, if leaders are guilty, then they're to be rebuked publicly. If you're not a, 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 a one woman man, then another believer, if, if that begins to play out in your life, another believer is supposed to help you with that, but you're not going to be rebuked publicly if you struggle through that process. Maybe it takes you a, a, a couple years to, to figure out how to, how to love your wife well. An elder, if he continues in sin, he's to, he's to be rebuked publicly so others may, may hear. And false accusations come, as well as, as true ones. False accusations, it could be things like a leader has wicked motives. That's what they said about the Apostle Paul. They said the Apostle Paul twisted the Bible for, for the favor of people or, or money. But it doesn't even have to be overt. It can go something like, I think, I think Pastor Brian's a good man. Personally, I don't think this is true, but you ever hear a conversation start like that, run, or rebuke the person? There's a, usually an accusation that, that's coming. And if you, if you take the bait and, and agree, then both of you can, can have roast pastor for lunch and also commit sinful speech and possibly be be a false witness and God takes that very seriously first timothy says you're not to even entertain something unless it can be substantiated and even then you're to bring it to the to the elder or the other elders so the person can be confronted so they'll have an opportunity to re- respond vast majority of gossip and other nonsense and accusations that harm a church swirl around in the dark. They're never brought to light. They're never brought to the person. They're, so they can never be corroborated and they just lay dormant. They, they're, they're like, a, you know, they're like, they're like Lyme's disease or malaria that, that, that's there and, and that, that can, that can come up later. It's sin. Don't do it. But the point of Titus, Verse 6 is an elder's life should contradict any accusation, not corroborate it. When you hear an accusation, you shouldn't go, wow, that kind of makes sense. I kind of felt that too. I, I did think he was a, he is a harsh man. I see him in the pulpit every, every Sunday. Blameless means the shepherds of Christ's church must have no sinful defect in their lives which could justly call their virtue, their righteousness, or their godliness into question and indict them. This is a present and ongoing requirement, meaning if at any time that reality ceases, they can disqualify themselves and open themselves to public rebuke. 
This is so important because the Bible says, as goes the shepherd, so goes the sheep. I always think it was, it was, uh, it was just so plain listening to, to certain pastors that, that were very authoritative and, and would do things like, um, you know, call the, the deacons or other leaders up in, in, in front of the, front of the church or call them out or whatever it is and, and then wonder why the congregation follows suit. We, we follow our leaders. We, we, we model them. God establishes this requirement because the elders of, of the church are examples for the flock to, to follow. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, if I can find it. I guess I don't have it up there. Listen to it. Prescribe and teach these things. In speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example to those who, who believe. Pastors are up front and out front. Their lives and their teaching are models. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16, who is adequate for these things? And then he gives the answer in 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. I think one of the most encouraging passages in light of these standards for church leaders is in, is in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 4, verses 15 and following. Now, listen to this passage in light of this, this, the, the, this high calling, these demands of, of character that's there. Listen to this, because Paul obviously commanded this list in Timothy's life and Titus' life, and Paul also writes this to Timothy. Practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them and listen, so that all may see your progress or so that your progress may be evident before all. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Paul told Timothy he wasn't above the congregation, he was among them, and that his progress should be visible to the people that he served. He's to give himself entirely to the work of ministry. He was to practice and immerse himself in the work. And he was to do that so his improvement would be evident before all. One of the things that, that I've done for, for uh, seminary students in, in, in homiletics class is, is show them. I'm not able to do this right now because it's on VHS. That's how old it is. But to show them the first sermon that I preached recorded with a big, the big uh, a blue, um, powder blue uh, curtain behind me. And, and of course, then they listen to me preach every, every Sunday. And the point is, progress is very evident from that sermon to, to this sermon. You should see the improvement of sanctification. What this means is that Timothy hadn't arrived yet. Elders are not holy men to marvel at. They're human examples to observe God's power in sanctification and in overcoming the flesh. And when you put those the standards up front in Titus 1 and Timothy 3 together with this passage, it means there should be enough character qualities 
in a person's life to set him apart for the work of eldering, but there, there will be enough frailties in him to make a model for others to follow in sanctification. That's the inner testimony. But he also should have a, an outer testimony to, to people in the, in the community. 1 Timothy 3, 7 says he, he must have a good reputation for those outside the church so they will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. A good testimony outside, outside of the church walls. You, you know the common excuse that everyone makes whenever you try to witness to them or invite them to church. They say, I'm a good person and the church is full of what? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. That's right. And, and you know the answer to this, though you're not a good person. In fact, the fact that you claim that makes you a hypocrite. But that disdain that people have is doubled if, if there is true hot hypocrisy in the leadership. Elders must not have a life that makes the charge of hypocrisy stick inside the church or outside the church. People don't have to like the truth that you preach or what you stand for. In fact, they won't. They hate the light. They hate the truth. Till their hearts are changed. But they must not have a reason to dismiss what you preach because of a moral flaw in your life or hypocrisy in your life. Elders will be slandered, accused inside and outside the church unjustly, but that is exactly the apostle's point. It should be unjustly. And because of that, they're... There must be time and training to develop that character. There's an unchargeable testimony. What's required? What do they look like? There's an unchargeable testimony. And then there's time and, and, and training. First Timothy 3, First Timothy 5 speaks to, to this. First Timothy 3, 6. In the list there, Paul says he must not be a new convert so that he'll not become conceited, proud, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And then there is a, a warning in 1 Timothy 5.22 to the current elders, to the current leaders, not to set apart any man, don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Because if you do, you're going to sh- share responsibility for their sins. You've ever had, your wife ever had you watch the, the cake in the, in the oven? And said, now, now, it's really important, don't let this cake fall. We have people coming over for, for dinner as if I have any idea what it looks like, whatever it's supposed to come out without it falling, right? Even if they set a timer, timers don't always, don't always work. And so it looks done to me whenever I pull it out, and then I pull it out, and it looks great, it's wonderful, and my wife's going to be so proud, and, and then I set the, the pan on the cooling rack, and I go in the other room, and I come back, and what happens? The middle of it is, is down. It's way more serious. Pulling the bread out of the oven in, in pastoral ministry. It's much more at stake than, than having a failed dessert for dinner. You can destroy God's, God's church. It's a big deal. And those who set apart people too early share in their sins if they fall in it. King James translates the word in 1 Timothy 3, 6, a novice. Literally a newly planted tree. Simply means the visible elders of a church must be mature. That's what it means. 
When I came to Timberlake, I was 35 years old. And one of the things the pulpit committee did, and, and even some church members, they, they asked about my age. 35, that's pretty young. It is pretty young. And they asked rightfully, rightfully so. However, I can remember one used this passage and asked, because they said TBC is such a, such a much larger church than the one that, that I came from. They wanted to know, could I actually handle, apply this passage as, as being able to handle all of the different facets of, of, a, of a larger ministry. It's the right question to ask, being 35 is the wrong application. A man who doesn't meet this qualification wouldn't meet it in a church of, of 25 people or a church of 2,500 people. Paul's not talking about leadership acumen here. He's talking about one's advancement in the lordship of Christ. Sufficient time must have passed from when a person comes to Christ than when they're set apart to, to lead others. And so spiritual maturity can be developed I've told you the story whenever I was first saved at, at, at Red House, a church of 150 people. Within a year and a half, I was the, was the youth pastor. What, what do you do in a, in, in, a, in a church where you've got somebody, we called it somebody on fire for the Lord and was very zealous. We, we stick them with the youth, right? Because the youth needs somebody who's energetic. That, that's pretty stupid, isn't it? I didn't know anything. You're going to put me with the most impressionable group in the church with, with all kinds of, of issues. And then we set those individuals up as replacements for their parents. That's, that's, that's horrible. And this passage right here warns uh, against that. Spiritual maturity must be developed. A younger man can qualify, like Timothy. If his life evidences godliness, and an older man can, can be disqualified if he's whittled away his life and, and has never grown in Christ. But the Apostle Paul is clear, a man who leads God's church must be tested over time and found faithful. In fact, all of the requirements that we're reading in both of these lists take time to develop and time for a congregation to examine there are no microwave elders, right? How dangerous and deadly it is to place someone unprepared and untempered in, in leadership. First Timothy 5.22 warns, don't lay hands on anyone too, too hastily, meaning don't ordain them too fast. It even says the deacons who are servants must first be, be tested and God tells us why time and training are, are, are important. Look at, the, look at the other side of these two, two verses. It's so they won't become proud over their position and, and fall into reproach doctrinally or morally. And then, as I said in 1 Timothy 5.22, they'll, they'll share in their sins. I understand that you might not need to be able to dissect a, a passage and determine some thorny theological issue, but an elder should be able to do that, must be able to do that. You might not care about the, the errors of egalitarianism and complementarianism, and, and you, don't even, you might not even know what that is. I mean, it's plain to be pastor. The Bible says that a pastor should be a man, and that's enough for me. 
You may not care about any of that. You, be, you may not be able to go to the Bible and, and, and show which comes first, a, a, a election or faith. But it's an elder's job to be able to do that. They must be able to teach truth and correct error. And that's not for, for, for someone immature and untrained. They receive this maturing under, under other godly elders we saw in 2 Timothy 2, and then they're tested in the congregation. The Bible says the primary testing ground for a church leader for this maturity is, is in their, their homes. Look at the fourth one. If you would at verse 6. It says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Visible leaders in the church are required to be, to be men faithful at home. The Bible addresses his household, his children, and his marriage. Now, again, these are qualifications for you, too, as a believer. They just must be observable in an elder's life. The parallel verse in 1 Timothy 3 echoes the same requirement. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the, of the church of God? Now, now notice, it doesn't say he's required to control the outcome of his household. Many men have, have messed their households up by trying to control, force what, what happens. This has nothing to do with, with controlling the outcome or his children's spiritual walk. Nobody can do that. The focus is that he, he's able to manage that journey well. You remember James Dobson years ago saying that, that what you should do whenever you get a teenager is, is that you, 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 put them in a, you put them in a barrel and, uh, and, and put the lid on and feed them through a hole until they're about, uh, about 18. And then at 18 you plug the hole and then you let them out when they're about 23 or 24. I may have those numbers wrong, but that was the point. You know? Your point was to get them through the, the choppy waters. You know, the Bible gives a gives a different standard than, than that. The focus is on an elder's skill in managing, not the outcome. The word means to preside over or to rule, and he's to do that well, inherently good. An elder's home should reflect his observable ability to, to shepherd how he helps his wife grow, how he guides his children, how he manages his time, are all indications of the quality that's there. He must preside over his family in a way that his children and his home life are faithful pictures of his influence, not final portraits of the the outcome. Paul says, household in then he applies it more specifically. His children are to be lined up under his authority. Age-appropriate, obviously. They're to be underranked. They're, they're to be in subjection, not out of fear, but, but due to wise leadership. His, his children are to be discipled, not dissipates. Everyone has heard of the problematic PK. 
And sadly, some homes and churches place such unrealistic ideals on a leader's family that they create them. Some people think that an elder's family should be automatic Bible scholars. I'm very thankful that you have never, you've never done that here. Unbelieving children don't disqualify an elder per se, but, but his, but his lack of shepherding ability can to the extent that they reflect his, his own character, his own character, not the children's character, his own character. It can be disqualifying. It's like whenever you go into the mall. Think of it this way. You go in the mall and you see a three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. And it causes a scene. The parent of the three-year-old thinks that everybody is paying attention to the child, but they're actually watching how you're going to handle the child, not the child himself. They understand a three-year-old supposed to throw a temper tantrum. What are you going to do about it? That's what they're, that's what they're focused on. And elders should be, should be those who have learned how to to do that. His family is not to be, to be known as a contradiction of what he preaches. These are general principles. An elder's household is not going to be any more spiritual than yours, but the fragrance of the gospel that he preaches should be evident there. His home will reveal if he truly loves Christ, and if he does, he'll love his children and he'll love his wife. If a man is not gentle with his wife and with his children, he's not going to be gentle with God's church. His marriage should be intact and excellent. Both Timothy and Titus use a similar phrase. You can see it here in verse 6. Look at verse 6. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife... The Bible is focused here on an elder's character, not his marital status. Though that clearly could, could be an indication that he violates this, this principle. There are three primary interpretations for this phrase, the husband of one wife. Uh, it, the first one is that it means he, he can't have more than one wife at a time, meaning he can't be a polygamist. But that seems to be ruled out elsewhere. Uh, polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament as a worldly custom, not God's design or, or desire. That, it, it seems obvious that he's not to be a polygamist. I don't think that's what Paul meant when he was writing to the people in Titus. The second interpretation is that it means he can't be divorced, and therefore he, he can't have more than, than one wife. But, but if that's the intent here, then, then a widower or a single man wouldn't be, wouldn't be qualified and that would seem odd. The third is, it means a man must be faithful in his marriage, with that only one woman has his affections, which is a reflection of his character. I mean, if you just think about the purpose of these qualifications, I think the meaning is, is very plain. This is, these are character qualities that you should be looking for in the individuals that are set apart to, to lead God's church and to model what, what biblical fidelity looks like. Of course, divorce can be a reflection of, of, of someone's character. And if it is, then the man would be disqualified by the first word on the list. A man who is divorced could be chargeable for his part in the, in the failed marriage. But there are people that, that did that before they ever came to Christ. Thirty years have passed. 
Is that what Paul's saying here? I don't think it is. I don't think Paul was putting together a list for Titus and Timothy. He has marital status in mind. I think he's saying an elder's purity and his fidelity to his wife is one of the qualities that he must have because he must have the same for Christ and his church. And a man who is unfaithful to his wife or has roving eyes, or as my friend Joel James said, looking at dodgy things on the Internet. He's from South Africa. If he has roving eyes, he'll not be faithful to Christ's wife or have a single focus toward her. And the way these things manifest themselves in the home come from the character of his, of his heart. And that's the fifth on the list. He's required to be a man with a specific character. If you would, at verse 7. It says, For the, the bishop, the overseer, must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not addicted, or not fond of sword, sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. God moves from the environments that evidence His character, His his household, his children, his wife, and he, he then defines that character in this, this rapid-fire list of spiritual traits. He must not be self-willed. He must not be arrogant. He must, not, must re, refuse to, to listen. must not refuse to listen. He's not quick-tempered. An elder must not be a man with a short fuse. Must not be inclined to, to anger. Doesn't mean he won't get angry. Just means he's not inclined to it. He's, he's to be a man not fond of, of, of wine, not addicted to wine. He must keep himself free from the control of any, of any substance. He's not quarrelsome. Literally, not one who strikes, not a fighter who's given the blows. Do you remember the church that, again, that I was was saved in? Um, two of the church leaders got in a literal fistfight in the parking lot after a, a business meeting. Probably shouldn't have been church leaders to begin with, and surely shouldn't have been after that. Not contentious. The person who's always argumentative. This is the, this is the person who, who always has a comment, who, who always wants to make a clarification, who likes to argue over certain things, and an, an elder should be patient when wronged. Many evangelical bloggers would not be qualified to elder because of this, this, this one. They evidently don't know that. They like being contentious and even more so by the, when they can hide behind a computer screen. Elders are not greedy of shameful gain. He, he does not adapt his teaching to his hearers or, or influence. He's, he's not a lover of money, not somebody driven by greed. He's, he's gentle. He's considerate, forbearing. He doesn't hold a grudge. He's, he's devout and just. He's one who is focused on God's pursuits, not his own. He's, he's self-controlled. He, he has mastery over his passions and impulses that that keeps him faithful to the will of God. He's sober and temperate, one who refrains from anything in pleasure or passion that clouds his pursuit or focus on God's task. He's, he's well-disciplined. He, 
he knows how to correctly order his priorities in light of God's mission. He's, he's orderly, the opposite of chaos. doesn't mean a neat freak. It, it means he will have a well-disciplined mind that produces stability in his life. He's a, he's a lover of good and he's a lover of strangers. He's hospitable. And all of these characters are in step with, with, his, with his desires. And that's number number six. He must pursue the ability. First Timothy three says, "If a man aspires the office of an overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do." Remember, sitting, having a desire to to teach and have a desire to. To, to be helpful to God's people, thinking, who am I? If you remember talking to Dr. Jason McClanahan on the phone, he wasn't a doctor then. He was already in seminaries a few steps ahead of me. And he pointed out this verse. A person's character is a mirror image of their desires. Did you hear what I just said? Now here is a really good place to apply this to yourself. A person's character is a mirror image of their desires. The Bible says that you will become like the idols that you worship. Your pursuits are your desires lived out. What you pursue is an evidence of what you desire. Your life portrays what's important to you. What does your life portray? It portrays what's important to you. We find a way to do what we want to do, don't we? Ah, oh, wow, you know, I don't feel good this morning. You know, I was really busy this week. You know, I've got, I got this, I've got, I've got that, whatever it is. I can't come to church because fill in the blank. But you go to the grocery store on Monday, you go to the movies on Tuesday night, you find a way to do what you want to do, right? And a church leader desires and pursues serving God's people well. It's what... First Timothy means, if a man aspires, he reaches for the, for the office of an overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do. Two different words. First is external, it means to reach out, to pursue after. The second is internal, which means to be inclined or, or willing. When you put the two of them together, it means an elder's desires will, will lead him to pursue the abilities he needs to elder well. Now, I was taught that this, this meant that you, if you're called to preach, you have the can't help it. You ever heard that? Just can't help but preach. And that meant that you wanted to preach so badly, you, you don't want to do anything else. And to a certain degree, I understand that there's probably an application there. But everyone preparing for ordination knew the answer that they were obligated to give when the, the question came at the very end, what if this council won't ordain you? What will you do? You already knew the, the, the canned answer that you were supposed to give. You're supposed to say, I'll preach anyway because God's called me to do it. He's put a fire in my heart or, or, or fill out. I mean, that, that's a really good amen line, but it's, but it's not good Bible interpretation. Surely someone that God calls will have a desire to obey that calling, but the focus of 1 Timothy 3 is a man pursuing and developing what qualifies him to be, to be an elder. That's going to make him a good one. And if you look at the list, 
being arrogant and rejecting authority of older men who are sitting on a council saying that you're not prepared to do that actually can disqualify you, not qualify you. You follow me? The man seeking to be a pastor will take pains to cultivate these marks of faithfulness in his life. He'll aspire them. He'll pursue them. He'll pursue the ability to teach. And he'll desire to do both. That's what the passage means. There's an inward desire and an outward pursuit that continues even after he's recognized as one of God's leaders. That's why his progress is evident before all, which is what Timothy was told. Be the last one. Number seven, he's required to have a singular commitment. I understand there are two things here, and I said singular. I'm keying in on the master. He's to have a particular commitment. He must be committed to the master's tasks. He must be committed to the master's word. Look at verse 7. Sorry, yeah, verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Keyword, steward. An elder is a steward of God. He's a faithful manager of God's flock. He's not the owner of God's flock. He must carefully attend to the master's tasks. In biblical times, a, a steward usually was usually a slave who had been given responsibility for property that was not his own. And his single focus was then to carry out the agenda of the owner. Church leaders are to have a commitment to carry out the agenda of the owner of the church. And if they don't have that, then they're not qualified. Church leaders must not see the church as their kingdom or their platform They must know it's not their church, it's the master's. The tasks are not theirs to choose, but the master's to obey. The sheep are not theirs to direct, but the master's to tend. In a very real way, I don't serve you, I serve Christ. I serve you on behalf of Christ. He's the one that I will answer to. And I can promise you, I fear Him and the judgment before Him way more than I fear any of you, even though I like you a lot. And some of you are pretty scary at times, you know? John Knox said, "The, The end I purpose in all my preaching is to instruct the ignorant, confirm the weak, to comfort the consciences of those humbled under the sense of their sin, and to bear down with the threatening of God's judgment to the proud and rebellious, laboring with all my power to gain them all to Christ. That was John Knox, the great reformer. The words that he spoke, the words that I speak, the words that any pastor speaks are not his own opinions or ideas, but the Master's words. So there must be a commitment to the Master's word. If you would, at verse 9, the very end of the list, after he gives the, the list, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching, with the teaching, so that he will be able to do two things, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, refute error. Teach sound doctrine, refute 
error. It's the task of a pastor. He holds fast the faithful word. He stays committed to the faithful word to do that. The elders of the church are those who handle the word of God. And they must be men who are unshakably committed to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. There is absolutely no exception here. If there is any leakage in that area, it's devastating. It may not be devastating today or next Sunday or a year from now, but I promise you, you look at that church five years down the road, ten years down the road, and it is going to be a mess. You'll know if they're committed to the Master's words, if they believe in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, by their dedication to diligent study. Every time I preach, every time anyone preaches, I invite my commitment to biblical authority to be scrutinized. And I put my hermeneutics on display. And the man who says he believes in the authority of the Bible and then preaches his own thoughts and doesn't take pains to explain God's thoughts is not committed to biblical authority. Or if he is, he's very confused and is very confusing to others. Pastors who tell you the Bible matters for life and then don't study it and then don't explain it are a contradiction of terms. We're all frail. We can get things wrong. I've gotten things wrong. But we should do that in spite of our diligence, not because of our lack of it. Amen? We don't dedicate ourselves to, to training others and all of that because it's, it, it tickles our, our fancy. We do it because the qualifications for the work requires faithful mentoring and accurately handling of the Bible. How, you, how will you know an elder whenever you, you see one? Who does God command you to, to follow? Well, they'll meet these seven requirements. They'll be a minimal level to where they're observable, and then they'll progress in them, thankfully. You should be thankful that I'm progressing in all of these things because I'm not where I want to be in all of these things. None of the pastors are, and you're not either. They will not be in final form. But if you stand back and you, you, you look at a, at a visible leader's life, you should see these characteristics Rising up, you, you, you should be able to, to see them. Maybe they, maybe they look like the, the little hills of West Virginia. And maybe they'll develop into the, the, the great mountain peaks of the Rockies. But you ought to be able to see them there in their, in their life. And as the crucible of life and, and the application of God's Word and sanctification happens, it pushes those, those little, little hills up higher and higher and higher until they become greater and greater models for the, for the flock. May God give His church many men that match these markers. And may He keep the, the elders that are here faithful to these. And if you listen to this list and you weren't sitting there thinking, how does this apply to me? I hope what you were thinking is, man, I need to pray for the leaders of my church because these are very Sobering words, aren't they? Why don't you bow your heads with me?